If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1, where we're going to look at a portion of one of the Gospels that tells us a little bit about Jesus' birth. Of course, Luke's is the most detailed account. Matthew gives us some other details. And this morning, we are going to focus on Joseph and his part in the birth of the Messiah. So, Please pray with me, and uh, then we'll get into our text for this morning. Father, we think of the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom Captive Israel. And Father, we think of how so many of the Jews, when Jesus came the first time, rejected him. And that even today, only a very small remnant have received him as the Messiah that he is. And Father, they are lost without hope in the world because you sent the Savior. You fulfilled many prophecies, but because it wasn't what they expected, they turned away from their only hope of salvation. And yet this is really the case with most people in the world. Satan has raised up so many religions, so many so-called Christian churches and Christian denominations that do not preach the gospel, that do not proclaim your truth, that do not submit to your word, and therefore are only Christian in name and not truly your church because they do not submit to your word. Father, we would ask that our lives would reflect the truth to the world, that how we live and how we speak would be a light to the nations as Jesus was a light to the nations, and that, Father, many might come to know you and praise you because of your work of grace in our life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, in his morning and evening devotion, wrote this. We anticipate the happy day when the whole world shall be converted to Christ. When the gods of the heathen shall be cast to the moles and the bats. When Romanism shall be exploded and the crescent of Mohammed shall wane never again to cast its billful rays upon the nations. When kings shall bow down before the prince of peace and all the nations shall call their redeemer blessed. Some despair of this. They look upon the world as a vessel breaking up and going to pieces never to float again. We know that the world and all that is in it one day will be burned up. And afterwards, we look for a new heavens and for a new earth. But we cannot read our Bibles without the conviction that Jesus shall reign where the sun does his successive journeys run. We are not discouraged by the length of his delays. We are not disheartened by the long period which he allots to the church in which to struggle with little success and much defeat. We believe that God will never suffer this world, which has once seen Christ's blood shed upon it, to be always the devil's stronghold. 
Christ came here to deliver this world from the detested sway of the powers of darkness. What a shout shall that be when men and angels shall unite to cry, Hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. What a satisfaction will it be in that day to have had a share in the fight, to have helped to break the arrows of the bow and to have aided in winning the victory for our Lord, end quote. If you can think back to when you first came to know the Lord, if in fact you have, you probably remember how exciting it was. Maybe for years you lived as an unbeliever and you didn't really want Jesus as Lord of your life, telling you what to do, going to church, being religious, you wanted to enjoy your sin. And then through a series of events, you came to realize by God's grace that you were a sinner in need of salvation, that Christ was the Savior who could deliver you from your sin, and that you, through faith in Him, could escape the consequences of your sin, which is the wrath of God. And so you repented of your sin, you believed in Jesus Christ by faith, and your life changed. You were born again. You were made into a new creature in Christ. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And everything seemed new. And it was so wonderful that you went out and told everybody you knew that you were a Christian, but they didn't really care. And you wondered why that was. Because it seems so logical to you, so reasonable, so rational, that everybody should receive Christ like you have now received Christ. And I don't think we even understand it, but what we're longing for is heaven on earth. We want to see evil done away with. We want to see justice and truth and peace reign on the earth. And we know that if everybody would just repent of their sins and believe in Jesus, things would be okay. We want to vote for people who will make laws that establish the kingdom of Christ on earth. We want that peace and joy and prosperity and comfort in this world. At Christmas, we feast and we party and we give gifts and do good to other men. We send cards, have extra worship services, uh, and we're longing within to have heaven on earth, but it will never be. It will never be. There are casualties in war. Traitors are revealed, wounds are inflicted, people lose their lives. And it is in the hard times that we must look past the battle to the predicted and certain outcome that Jesus shall reign where the sun does his successive journeys run. Paul succinctly summarizes Jesus' birth in Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5. Saying, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The fullness of time was that perfect time when the gospel could be spread and this vast road system and trade system and common language that was around during the turn of the first century when Jesus was born. The Israelites, of course, were under the thumb of Rome. They were oppressed. They were miserable. 
They were tired of having their religious sites defiled and tired of being pillaged by the Romans. And periodically, little groups of them would rise up in rebellion and be slaughtered. They longed to be freed from the oppression. And it seemed that the, the, the curses of Deuteronomy just kind of settled down on the nation of Israel to stay for good. This drove them to long for the Messiah. And many probably figured that their sin had, had caused them to forfeit the promise of the Messiah because the Messiah had not come and had not come and had not come. Rome continued to reign. Yet some who knew and believed the scripture still had hope For the prophet, Daniel predicted that the Messiah would come after Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And Jerusalem was rebuilt and the temple was rebuilt more magnificently than it had ever been rebuilt before. And so they were longing, they were looking, they were waiting for the Messiah to come. Then in a poor and obscure town in the northern part of Israel called Nazareth, a builder named Joseph lived He was of the line of David, king of Israel. He was a righteous man. And like all Jews, he longed for the Messiah's coming. Joseph was legally betrothed to a young girl named Mary, who was a God-fearing young lady. And Joseph and Mary had not been officially married yet. They were betrothed. Arrangements had been made by their parents, but Mary, probably being so young, was not quite ready in their sight to take on the responsibilities of being a wife, a mother, and run her own household. So the couple were waiting. Then the angel Gabriel was dispatched from the presence of God to visit Mary and to let her know that she was what all Jewish women wanted to be, the mother of the Messiah, and that she would have the Messiah as a virgin. For the child would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And please look in your Bibles and follow along as I read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord, by the Lord, through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. From our text, I want to look at four different aspects that the birth of Christ had with the life of Joseph and also look at a parenthetical statement given by Matthew 
So we can just have a better understanding of Joseph's part in the birth of God's son and praise God for Joseph's part in it. First, Joseph was betrayed and insulted. Look at verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. The word Jesus, the name Jesus, means the Lord saves or Yahweh is salvation. The word Christ means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there were three different offices that received anointing, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus would fulfill all three of those offices. And so he was the anointed one. He was the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word, or the Christ, the Greek word for the anointed one. So Matthew is telling us right out the beginning here that he's going to tell us about the birth of the Messiah. Look at the middle of verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, Luke and his gospel and Luke chapter 1, verse 27, and then later again in chapter 2, verse 5, says Joseph was engaged to Mary. Of course, Luke is writing to Gentiles who in practice being engaged like we do. You, you decide to get married and you're described as being engaged until the wedding day when you're married. The Jews, however, practice betrothal. Betrothal was a little different in that it was legally binding. In other words, you couldn't just step out of it. When parents got together and they betrothed, their children together, a man and a woman together, it was legally binding. They were considered husband and wife to be. And the only way that you could stop that is to get a divorce, to break the legally binding betrothal. So they were betrothed. <coughs> this is why verse 19 goes on to say, Joseph was intending to send Mary away, which means he was going to divorce her. And it is why the angel says to Joseph in verse 40, do not be afraid to take Mary as a wife. You know, how do you divorce somebody who isn't your wife? Because you're betrothed. But look towards the end of verse 18. It says, before they came together, she was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. Now, so much is left unsaid here. We're not told about the angel's visit to Mary. We're not told about her consenting to be the Messiah's mother. We're not told about the conception by the Holy Spirit as a virgin. We don't know how much time has elapsed. All we know is Mary knew she was pregnant. Maybe she just believed it by faith. Maybe she started having morning sickness. We don't know. The text merely says that Mary was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. But consider Joseph in all this, a righteous man. Joseph is a righteous man. That is, he loves the Lord. He loves the truth. He, he tries to honor God with his life. And somehow, Mary knew she was pregnant. And somehow, Joseph found out. Did Mary tell her mother? We are not told. Did she tell her father? We are not told. But assuming her mother and her father were still alive, she probably went to her mother and told her mother. And her mother probably told her father. And her father probably got very angry. Imagine the trauma that Mary's pregnancy caused her parents. Having a daughter who was pregnant out of wedlock was a scandal. It was approach upon the woman, approach upon her family. It was a violation of the law of Moses that brought the death penalty. So when your daughter comes to you and says, I'm pregnant, 
It's bad, it's scary, and it's shameful. And imagine how conflicted Mary was about her pregnancy. She was going to give birth to the Messiah while a virgin. How do you tell your parents about that? What if your daughter came to you and said, Mom, Dad, I'm pregnant, but I'm still a virgin. And I'm going to have a baby because the Holy Spirit conceived it in me. It's like, right. You've got to be kidding, right? Don't you have a better one than that? I mean, if you knew your daughter and you knew she feared the Lord and you knew she was pregnant, who would you suspect might be the father? Joseph. You would probably accuse Joseph of defiling your daughter and disgracing your entire family. But what if Mary, seeing the anger and the shock in her face, but mom and dad, it's okay. It was the Holy Spirit. How would that one settle with you? I'm sure Mary told her parents what happened. I mean, wouldn't you? And if you were Mary's parents, would you believe Mary? It's very far-fetched. It's impossibly far-fetched. They probably figured Joseph was the father and that Mary had invented this tall tale in order to protect Joseph not realizing in her youth how ridiculous the story was, but that it was a lie. Mary's father probably set out to find Joseph and accuse him of defiling his daughter. Of course, Joseph would have denied it vehemently because he knew he wasn't the father. Mary's parents were probably mad at her and mad at Joseph. Joseph was probably brokenhearted and falsely accused. And I am sure... That if Mary's father was the one who told Joseph, the confrontation wasn't very pretty. And Joseph had to find out that the woman he was betrothed through was pregnant by someone other than himself in a false accusation. (coughs) And how do you think Joseph felt after learning this news? The woman he was betrothed to was pregnant and it wasn't him. And do you think Joseph believed Mary's story that she was pregnant as a virgin by the Holy Spirit? Ha! Who could believe it? Of course he didn't believe it. That's why he was going to divorce her. Everyone knows virgins are never pregnant. It's an insult to one's intelligence to assert that it is so. Thus, Joseph had to bear the weight of what appeared to be betrayal, probably false accusation, and a broken heart because God chose his fiance, his betrothed, to be the woman that every woman wanted to be at that time, the mother of the Messiah. And it's just odd, isn't it? Uh, If you think about it, every woman wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. Now a woman gets to, and just look at all the pain and anguish here. They don't finally say, yes, it's about time. We're so glad. Nothing of the sort doesn't even register in that way. It's nothing but pain and shame and hurt. Secondly, Joseph plans to graciously divorce Mary. Look at verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, 
Just stop there and consider what this tells us about Joseph. Joseph, as far as he knows, has been betrayed. The woman he is intending to marry has become pregnant outside of wedlock. He doesn't know who the father is, but he knows it's not him. He's probably been falsely accused by Mary's father. Surely his heart is broken, and yet he chooses to forego publicly exposing Mary, disgracing Mary, and disgracing her family in the process. He has every right to do so. He can do it. It would be right to do it, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And here we see the character of an extra extraordinary man joseph decides to take the hit even though he has been wronged joseph's gracious decision is reflected look at the end of verse 19 that he planned to send her away secretly he planned to divorce her in secret so that both mary and her parents would escape at least the public shame brought on by him and this tells us some more things about joseph doesn't it It tells us that Joseph, though brokenhearted, though feeling betrayed, was going to be kind to Mary and her family. Second, it tells us that Joseph didn't believe Mary's story, otherwise he wouldn't have pursued a divorce. Joseph surely felt lied to, and not just lied to, but lied to in an insulting way. Holy Spirit and virgin, come on. Third, Joseph instructed by an angel. Look at verse 20. But when he had considered this, that is, divorcing Mary, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, and just stop there and consider that Joseph did not want to marry an unfaithful woman. He did not want to marry a woman who is a liar, who is going to continue to lie to him. He didn't want to have somebody else's baby. And so he fell into a fitful sleep with a broken heart, having decided to divorce Mary secretly and let her and her family deal with the consequences. They could do it they wanted, but he wasn't going to take the blame for it. Look at the middle of verse 20. But an angel appeared and said, Joseph, son of David. And this is interesting, too. Usually people were called by the name of their immediate father, like, you know, John, the son of Zebedee. And it should have been Joseph, the son of Jacob, which we know from the genealogy was his father. And yet when the angel addresses him, the angel addresses him as Joseph, son of David. Why? Because he was in the royal line. And so he goes back to the most significant person in the line of Joseph, which is King David. Why does he do that? Because Jesus needs to be the savior of the world. In order to be the savior of the world, he needed to be adopted into the line of David so that he could have all the rights and privileges of a full-blooded son. Mary, of course, was also of the line of David. And so she would actually give Jesus royal blood, but not the legal rights. That only came through the father. Not only that, since God was Jesus's father, Jesus would escape the curse and sin passed down through the father's. 
When Adam sinned, though Eve sinned first, the scriptures blame Adam as the first one to sin. Blame Adam for breaking the covenant. Romans 5.12 says, Through one man sin entered the world and spread to all men because all sinned. So when Adam and Eve had children, Adam's sin nature was spread to their children and they were born sinners and guilty because of what Adam did. And so every single person since then is not only conceived in sin, they are born in sin and then sin because they're sinners. This is called original guilt. Well, if you're going to have a savior, somebody who can rescue other sinners from their sin, you have to have a perfect and sinless sacrifice. Therefore, Jesus could not be in the line of Adam. Otherwise, he would be born with the guilt and sin of Adam. So he needed to have God at his father. But he needed to have the blood of David. I need to have the legal rights of Joseph. And so God, in this brilliant stroke, had him conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a woman, adopted by Joseph. And that's why the angel says, Joseph, son of David. To emphasize the connection there. Look at the middle of verse 20 where the angel says, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. This reveals something else, doesn't it? Joseph was afraid to take her as his wife. This tells us that Joseph probably still loved her. He wanted to marry her, but he was afraid. Afraid of what? Well, we can guess... What if Mary was unfaithful again? What if she continued to lie to him? What if the real father showed up and wanted the child that he raised? What will happen to his reputation if it's found out that Mary got pregnant by somebody other than himself before they came together? Surely Joseph had these kinds of fears. Then the angel confirms Mary's story. Look at the end of verse 20. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. But even when an angel tells you that, it's still hard to believe. It's still hard to believe. Mary had a hard time, right? Remember, she said, how can this be? Jesus needed to be conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he could be born the Holy Child, so he could live a perfect life, so he could die as both God and man. This is what theologians call, and they love to invent, complicated terms that no one uses or remembers to confuse people. The hypostatic union. Hypostatic union? Sounds like some sort of electricity, doesn't it? You know, I mean, you know, when it's a dry, hot day, you get hypostatic on you. Um, In the Council of Chalcedon in 451... The church got together, many of the church leaders got together because there were so many attacks upon the person of Christ. See, if you believe in the wrong Jesus, you go to hell. And so Satan was saying, well, Jesus wasn't fully God. Jesus wasn't fully man. Jesus wasn't God at all. Jesus wasn't man at all. Jesus was man at the beginning and then became God. And Jesus was God and got a little man on him. And and there were all these weird heresies that were going around and so they decided to get together and settle once for all and summarize what the scriptures say so that there would be a document a creed a concise statement saying this is who jesus is he had dual natures he was 100 percent god 100 percent man and one person and this is what they wrote 
Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance, literally hypostasis, with the Father's regard his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance, hypostasis, with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men, for our salvation of Mary, the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and one subsistence, hypostasis, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers is handed down to us, end quote. And that very concise, very exact creed has protected the church since 451 against those who denied the full humanity, full deity, virgin birth, and sinlessness of Jesus Christ. But the fact is, Jesus needed to have God as his father to escape the sin of Adam. He needed to have Mary as his mother to be fully human. He needed to have Joseph to be legally adopted so he could have full rights and privileges to the throne. He needed all of those things and God brought them all together that first Christmas. Look at verse 21 where we see what the angel told Joseph about Mary's child. She will bear a son. Now keep in mind, these are the days before ultrasound. So Mary and Joseph could paint his room blue before he was born. They didn't need to worry about that. They could have a baby shower and tell people to bring blue diapers. Look at verse 21. We see, secondly, that the angel tells Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus, or you shall call his name the Lord saves. And the end of verse 21 confirms this, for he will save his people from their sins. This tells us that the name of Jesus, which was a popular name at the time, would literally be fulfilled because he wouldn't just be named the Lord saves, he would be the Lord who saves. The he in the phrase, he will save his people from their sins, is emphatic. It means he himself or he alone will save his people from their sins. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be saved from your sins? Well, do sins threaten us? Indirectly. More exactly, it is the consequences of sin that affect us. And more exactly still, it's Jesus himself. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. And because he is infinitely holy and perfectly just, he must punish every sin. Since we are all sinners, 
We need saved from Christ, the judge. And this is what's odd about it, that Jesus came into the world to save people from his own justice. He couldn't set aside his justice, but he could make a way so we could bypass his justice by receiving his perfect righteousness. When we believe in Jesus by faith, he takes our sin from us. He forgives us based off of what he did on the cross. And then he gives back to us his perfect righteousness so that when the father looks at us, we are justified or declared to be right based on what Jesus did. And all of our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did. So when we're talking about Jesus being the judge, this is confirmed in many places in the scriptures. Peter in Acts 10, 42 says, and he ordered and preached to the people, solemnly testify that this is the one, speaking of Jesus, who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Paul preaching to the Greeks in Mars Hill says in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And you're thinking, well, how do you know he's talking about Jesus? Having furnished proof to all men by raising from the dead. Oh. Paul, in some of the last words he wrote to anybody that we know of in 2 Timothy chapter 4, said this to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word. Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead as it is as at his appearing in his kingdom. So Jesus was born to live a perfect life. To die as a sacrifice for sinners, a substitute for sinners, so that we through faith in him could receive the free gift of eternal life based on what he did. Of course, Joseph probably didn't understand that Mary's child would be born to die as a sacrifice for sinners. He thought what most Jews thought at the time, that when the Messiah came, he would gather an army and he would defeat Rome and establish the kingdom. They looked at all the texts that referred to the second coming and thought that they would apply to his first coming. That's why they just didn't understand Jesus. They thought Messiah comes, beats up Rome. That's what that's what's in their mind. And so Jesus supposedly comes. He doesn't form an army. He insults them. He exposes them as religious hypocrites and they hate him because he isn't meeting up with their expectations. And so they reject him. Four, there's a parenthetical note from Matthew. Look at verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This takes us back to the time of King Ahaz in the earlier chapters of Isaiah. Ahaz was uh, a wicked king of Judah and several of his enemies got together and they were going to attack him. He was then fearful because he didn't want of course, his kingdom to be destroyed and overthrown by his enemies. And so God, 
in an encouraging gesture, sends Isaiah the prophet to Ahaz, and Ahaz um, receives the message from the Lord through Isaiah, and the Lord says, listen, you don't need to worry about it. It's going to be fine. Your enemies are going to be taken out. You don't need to worry about it. So just, just relax. Pretty soon they're going to be gone. And then, in a very gracious act, not only does God tell Ahaz what's going to happen, he, he, he gives him an opportunity which really nobody has ever had before, except Solomon. And he tells Ahaz, Ahaz, I'll tell you what, in order to confirm that what I'm telling you is true, ask for a sign any sign you want, make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven, ask for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. But Ahaz, being the stubborn little sinner that he was, said, I'm not going to test the Lord. So God then says, as quoted in our text in verse 23, Matthew quotes from Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, this is very interesting, and this is why. The Hebrew word for virgin, as it appears in Isaiah seven fourteen, is a word that just means young woman. It can be a young married woman or a young virgin. It can be both. Context determines which. This is why the Jews probably wouldn't have thought much of Isaiah 7.14. Because if you keep reading through Isaiah 7 and then 8, you will discover that Isaiah, the prophet, approaches his wife and she gives birth to a son whose name I like to give to the people at Starbucks when I order something. Maher Shalah Hashbaz. They usually get the ma, and then they stop and look at me like, what? And I say, or Jack, and then they write that down. But what happens is, is they, Isaiah approaches his wife, and she has a son, and by the time that son grows up, all the enemies are gone. So most Jews thought, well, the prophecy there, what happened there is that God was telling Ahaz, I hear, asked for a sign. He said, no, well, I'm going to give you a sign. A maiden is going to have a son. And before that son gets old, the enemies are going to be gone. Isaiah approaches his wife, has a son, enemies gone, done with, and they don't think of anything of it. Now, this is what's really fascinating. What's really fascinating is that any careful student of the text would have had two problems with the sign only referring to Isaiah's son. Why is that? First, Isaiah's son was not called Emmanuel, God with us. And secondly, Isaiah having a son with his wife is not a sign as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. It's just the standard fare of married couples. And what is even more interesting is that when the Jews 
about 150 BC, saw that the Greek language was very popular and decided to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. When the Jews did this, and they translated Isaiah 7.14 into what is called the LXX or the Septuagint, when they did that, they chose a word in Isaiah 7.14 which only refers to virgins. Now that is interesting. It'll be interesting when we get to heaven to see if the, there's a guy there who said, yeah, I understood it. And so I argued and said, we've got to make it virgin. Matthew quotes from the LXX, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, once you understand that Isaiah 7.14 is referring to a virgin, then it's a sign as deep as Sheol and as high as the heavens. And then if you add on to that, that the name Emmanuel actually means God will literally be with us, then it really fits the bill. Because then the child would be a virgin-born son of God. And of course, that is what the Bible teaches. Jesus was God in human flesh. It was predicted way back in Genesis 3.15, the first place that mentions you know, that hints to the gospel. Theologians call it the proto or first evangelium, the first gospel. Where the woman's seed is said to crush the serpent's head. Women don't have seed. Men do. Later on in Genesis 49 verse 10, it said the Messiah would be of the tribe of Judah. Both Joseph and Mary were of the tribe of Judah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 17, Nathan the prophet tells David that one from his royal line would rule and reign on his throne over Israel forever and ever in what is called the Davidic covenant. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it tells us that um, earlier in the chapter that a light would shine in the Gentiles and the land of Galilee and uh, of the Gentiles that they, people would see a great light and a child would be born, a son would be given, his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and all the governments of the world would rest on his shoulders and there'd be no, uh, there would be uh, just a never any increase to his throne and his government and it says and the zeal of the Lord of hosts would bring it about. Later on in Isaiah chapter 11, it speaks of the Messiah would come from the root of Jesse, that is David's father, and that the spirit of God would rest upon him in a sevenfold way. And then in Micah chapter 5 too, it says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem as a child who had already existed from eternity past and whose goings forth was from long ago, even from the days of eternity. He would be born as having already gone forth from the days of eternity. And yet Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. And yet through a very interesting little providential event, a census was ordered and they had to take a trip down to Bethlehem. And that's when Jesus was born. And if you talk to any woman who's nine months pregnant and ask them if they want to take a 70 mile trip on foot or on a donkey or on a camel or in a cart, they'll tell you no. And yet that is what happened. That is what happened. 
And so these prophecies from the prophets and many others were fulfilled in Jesus. Every one of them had to be fulfilled or Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. So Matthew mentions Isaiah 7:14 because it's the most unique of all the prophecies about Jesus' birth. He would be born of a virgin and would be called God with us. Fifth, Joseph obeys the Lord. Look at verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Doesn't this remind you of somebody? Think of somebody. He awoke and did what he was supposed to. Abraham. I mean, doesn't it remind you of Abraham? When God says, Abraham, I know you waited a long time for your son, your only son, Isaac, the son of promise whom you love. Now I want you to get up and I want you to go kill him, offer him up as a sacrifice. And Abraham gets up and does what the Lord says. Joseph does the same thing. Joseph, convinced that Mary was telling the truth, now takes action. Marches over to Mary's parents and says, I want to marry your daughter. They were probably like, what is going on? I mean, think about it. So you... So you're telling us you're not the father. It's not your child, but you want to marry our daughter anyway. Yeah. Okay. Take her. Remove her disgrace. Remove our disgrace. And we're not told if Mary's parents had come to believe that Mary was pregnant as a virgin with the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. Mary's father did give his consent. And look towards the end of verse 24. And so he took Mary as his wife. Now at this point we need to clarify something. Because skeptics love to bring things like this up. So I like to address them. There seems to be an apparent contradiction or discrepancy. Between Matthew and Luke's account. Because our text it says that he took Mary as his wife. But when we read Luke chapter 2 verse 5. It says when they arrived in Bethlehem. They were still engaged and they were not married. So people say well see there's a contradiction. Oh, this is pretty easy to answer. Our text says in verse 24 that Joseph did what the angel said. He took Mary as his wife. It doesn't say when he took Mary as his wife or that he took Mary as his wife immediately. No time reference is stated. But even if, even if he did say, okay, I'll get married to you. And even if they had the ceremony, and even if they started living together, which was probably the case, otherwise Mary would have been unwed and pregnant for nine months, right? So most likely they immediately had a ceremony and they immediately started living together. And Joseph, trying to maintain self-control because of what the angel said, probably said, why don't you go stay with your cousin Elizabeth for three months. So he ships her off. But when they arrive in Jerusalem, Luke says they're not married. Why is that? Because in order to be married, four things must be in place. One man, one woman. It's the first thing. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The second thing is there must be a public commitment so that everybody knows that you're getting married. You're now married. That's the difference between marriage and fornication. Fornication, there's no public declaration and no responsibility. 
marriage, there is a public declaration and a commitment to be responsible to take care of your wife and any children that might come along. Third, both have to agree to the marriage and mostly cleave to one another. And four, the marriage must be physically consummated. If you don't have those four things, you don't have a marriage. And since Joseph couldn't do the last one, they were technically engaged. They were probably still living together. This is why our text says in verse 25, look there, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Notice the text says he kept her a virgin until she gave birth. After Jesus' birth, the marriage was consummated. The couple, having met all of God's criteria, were now officially husband and wife. Look at the end of verse 25. And he called his name Jesus, the Lord saves, because he would literally save. So we've seen from our text that Joseph had a pretty big part to play in Jesus' birth. And, and we could go on, but time has run out, and talk about how difficult it was to be the father of the Messiah. And how Joseph had to leave and escape with Mary and Jesus to Egypt for a couple years. And how when they returned and they settled into Bethlehem, they had to get uprooted again and flee to Nazareth because both times Jesus' life was in danger. All these things Joseph had to bear because God chose for him to be the adopted father of the Messiah. Now, what are some lessons we can learn from Joseph's life? First, when the Lord chooses you for a purpose, it doesn't mean life will be easy or without trial. It just means he chooses you. That's all. I think sometimes we think, well, if it's God's will, it'll be easy. It'll be fun. It'll be exciting. No, it's often hard, miserable, and you have to go through trial. Second, a careful study and understanding of God's word will protect you from pain and grief. If Mary's parents had studied the scriptures and Joseph had studied the scriptures and they were anticipating that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, then a lot of the grief that they went through would have been averted. Just like if we study the scriptures and the better we understand God's word, the more it will protect us from misunderstandings from having unmet expectations dashed to pieces because we thought God was going to do one thing, but in fact, he never was going to do that. We just didn't understand the truth. Third, we need to be like Joseph, and when we are sure about God's will for us, immediately take action, just like Abraham did. Even if we're thinking to ourselves, this is going to be hard, this is going to be miserable, and this isn't going to be fun. Joseph knew what he was getting into, to a degree. I'm going to marry a woman who's pregnant with the Son of God. I mean, what do you do with that one? I mean, when he's born, do I ask him what to do or, you know? (laughs) For Jesus, in becoming a man requires his followers to suffer just as he suffered. Christ learned obedience through the things he suffered. And we need to suffer too. Jesus said, listen, the slave is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So be ready for it. 
Five, when God chooses to use us, we usually don't understand the ramifications or implications of his using us. We merely need to believe by faith that he will use us, that it will be for our good and his glory. A lot of times you have no idea why things are happening in your life the way they're happening. They may be painful. They may be difficult. You may think, why is this happening this way? This isn't fun. This doesn't seem good. This doesn't seem right. And God's not up there going, I forgot about you. I had no idea this was going to happen. It took me by surprise and I'm trying to fix it, but it's too difficult. No. That's what he gave you. And that's what's good for you. That's what's going to accomplish his plan. And that's what's going to give him the most glory. And sometimes you never find out in this life how that is. You just have to believe it by faith because we must live by faith. And six, there are times when others hurt us. And though we may have a right to publicly disgrace them, we can choose the higher road. Extend grace. And be kind and patient even when wronged. And this is not easy. Because our flesh says, get back. Get even. Joseph had every right to disgrace Mary and her family, and yet he did not do it. He extended grace even before the angel visited. He said, I'll do it in secret to cause him the least amount of pain as possible. We should do the same thing. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for Joseph's life. We're thankful that you chose him to be the father of the Messiah. We're thankful that His example gives us many good lessons we can apply to our own life. We pray, Father, that we would be like him in all those good ways he displayed for us. And, Father, that we would live our ways, our lives in ways that give you glory, even when we don't understand, even though we can't figure it out, even though we have no way of knowing how it's going to work out for your good your glory, and our blessing. Father, when we can't figure that out, we know you made the promise and we can believe that and trust in that even if we die not knowing. So Father, may we be people who reflect back to you what your word teaches us through Joseph's life so that you are glorified, praised and worshiped as you deserve and so that we can be blessed. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.